0: The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, let me ask you to take your copy of God's word and open with me to the book of James. James chapter 5. We're uh, very quickly coming to the end of the book of James. So James chapter 5 is where we'll be today. Did you enjoy Greg's little rant? A little too much. I might say. Well, I'm, uh, I'm here to tell you that that will be reflected in uh, the performance evaluation. <laughs> Sound guys, you guys are not off the hook either. You should mute him when he starts to go off like that. Um, I'm tempted to uh, pull a page from the Genesis 3 playbook and, and do what Adam did and say, that woman that you gave me, she made me do this. But again, I think that just reflects on me that I'm at that point in my life where my wife has to pick out my clothes. So, (laughs) isn't it good to be able to laugh? It's good to be a part of a faith family that loves the Lord and loves one another, loves His Word, that we understand that none of us are where we are going to be, that all of us are in this process of being made like Christ. And today we come to a section of of our passage together that we need, because there are some questions here that plague us. As we walk through this book of James together, verse by verse, there have been some things that James has assumed. He has assumed, number one, that for the Christian, for every Christian, that being part of a church would be normal, that every Christian should be part of a church. That's why he says here in our passage today, you'll hear him say things like, among you, plural, meaning not you individually, not writing to just a bunch of individuals who live separate lives from one another. He's writing to a group, a body, a family that comes together. Is there any among you, he says. Not only that, he assumes that every church would be plagued with problems of sin. We see this as we walk through this book. He he continues to talk about all the things that will go on in the church, the misuse of the tongue and the slander and all these things. The failure to do the word among the members of this church, that that the church, no matter what church it would be in history, as long as Christ has not returned, would be plagued with problems of sin. And that the third thing he assumes is that one of those problems that every church would have to deal with would be dealing with sickness in a sinful Genesis 3 world. We come to a topic today that's that's a pretty tough topic, and and the way James addresses this, James deals with it in a way that, that contradicts so much of the health and wealth, prosperity, teaching and preaching that is so prevalent today. You can tell people that if they follow Jesus, all their problems will go away, their health will be perfect, and they'll have all the money and resources they want. And that sounds great, and people will flock to it, but in the real world, it doesn't work out that way. James here tells us that that there will be those among us who will be sick. Not all Christians will have good health. Some in our day and age, some probably in his day and age, also taught that everyone can be healed if they just have enough faith. But all this does is add insult to injury. It sort of doubles up the misery that the sick person is feeling because the person who has grown weary, as this word implies, under the weight of the sickness Now, not only do they have to deal with the sickness, but now they have to deal with the fact that apparently they have insufficient faith. And there is a double injury to them. James says, what about the person who never is healed? Now, he's going to give us today in this text a passage, and, and it will sound like a formula, but it's not so much a formula as much as it is a grace of God giving us Instructions as to how to pray for one another. What about the person, though, who, who never is healed? What about the person who follows these instructions and gets to the end of it and no change is made? The, the pain in the back still exists. The tumor is still there. What about that person? Are they supposed to just accept and, and, and suffer and endure hopelessness? Well, I want us to look at this passage today and I want you to see God's sovereignty when it comes to sickness, and I want you to see the place of prayer. How does prayer fit into this equation of suffering and sovereignty? So let's read this together and then we'll we'll dive in and we'll walk through this passage together. James chapter 5, verse 13. James says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. I want to show you some things as we walk through this passage today about suffering, sovereignty, and the place of prayer. Number one is this. The proper response is worship. The proper response is worship. When James here in verse 13 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praise. What he's showing us is that in the human existence, there will always be a spectrum of circumstances that you and I find ourselves in. Life sometimes will present you with a set of specific circumstances that are cheerful, They they lead to to happiness. You're in good times, but other times life will present you with circumstances that are not so cheerful. In fact, there is suffering that is involved. In fact, we can all say that at some point, wherever we are in our lives, we will be at some point on this continuum between suffering and cheerfulness at some point throughout our entire lives. We'll never get away from this. We've got to be somewhere. There's gonna be sometimes life's better, sometimes life is not so good. And James wants to remind us that no matter where you find yourself, the response should always be worship. Let me show you what I mean. During suffering, we tend to get angry, don't we? We want to complain. We want to become bitter. We maybe pity ourselves. when We're just suffering under the weight of something. It's not fair. Maybe you get angry with God. You shake your fist at him. Maybe you look desperately for something to do to alleviate this. And, and if there's just something you can do, I'm, I, I just do that. And you pursue all of these different avenues, and there's nothing wrong with pursuing avenues, but James wants us to see that the first avenue that we should take is to pray. Prayer is an act of worship. Prayer is an act of worship because, in the middle of our suffering, it calls us back from getting angry, it calls us back from complaining. It calls us back from pity. It calls us back from the fact that we can't do anything to alleviate our suffering. In that moment, what we do is we say, God, I don't know what to do. You are God in heaven. Lord, would you please? And in that moment, we admit that we can't, but God can, and we ask him. We turn to him, and that is an act of worship. Not only does he say in times of suffering, but also in times of celebration or or cheer, he says during happy times, we tend to forget God. We tend to assume that we don't need God when things are going well, don't we? When everything is going well, oftentimes you see people disappear. They disappear from the church when things are going really well, but it's in seasons where things begin to turn that they, they come back. We have a tendency to forget God when things are going well, and what James says, it's in those very moments, rather than forgetting God, sing praise to Him. Because in that moment, we need to remember that every good gift is from Him. So James says, regardless of where you are on this spectrum of human circumstance, the right response is always worship. There's certainly a, a private matter to this, that in our private lives, we ought to, when we're suffering, we ought to pray. Notice that he doesn't say, pray that God would remove the suffering. He just says, pray. We want to assume, we want to rush there that, God, that we're praying for him to remove the suffering, but he doesn't say that. He just says, Pray. But there's certainly a private matter to this that when we are suffering, we ought to pray. When we are in cheerful times, we ought to sing praise privately. But what about when we come together? As Greg said to you a minute ago, we are a gathering. What happens when we come together? How does this play out? Well, we often assume that the only thing that is supposed to go on in this place when we gather is cheerfulness. But if all we ever have is cheerful worship, then we're leaving out the other end of the spectrum. If I have communicated to you that when you come in this place that you are to leave your troubles behind and put on a smile and sing happy songs to Jesus, then I apologize. I don't think I've done that. But if I have, then hear me plainly, that's not complete worship. See, complete worship instead is responding rightly in the middle of whatever we are enduring, whatever we are going through, we respond rightly. When we do so, we each contribute to the beauty and to the completeness of corporate worship. See, when when a brother or sister comes in here and they are suffering under the weight to the point that they are weary from it and in that moment they continue to come and they gather with the church and out of their suffering they pray to God in this place. It is corporate worship. When someone comes in here and life is well and you sing from that, it adds to worship. Al Mohler says it this way. Al Mohler said, it's not that the suffering are not to praise, and it's not that the cheerful are not to pray, but God, to His glory, even uses our dispositional states to blend together in worship what is most needful in the congregation for its praise, for its witness, and for its health. Church, what we're asking you to do is not to pretend like life isn't happening to you. What we're asking you to do is in the middle of it to worship God. See, worship is private as you live out your life through the week, but worship is also corporate. Let's not not create a place that is plastic and fake where we all have to put on masks to hide what's really going on in our lives. Let's don't hide behind any of this, even a, even a call to be real, let's not hide behind a call to be real so that we can continue to live in sinful disobedience to our God either. But let's be real and honest and respond to God in worship wherever we are, wanting to make much of Jesus. Amen? Secondly, out of this, this passage today is there's no explanation for why some are suffering and some are cheerful. James never gives us that. He just goes right by it. Are some of you suffering? Are some of you cheerful? He gives us this picture that in the average, normal, typical church, there will always be some that are suffering and some that are cheerful, but he doesn't give an explanation as to why. Sometimes sickness and suffering are the direct result of sin in our lives. We we can say that sometimes suffering comes in the form of consequences, can't we? If, uh, if, If I... Who, like bluebell ice cream, decide that I want to eat a tub of bluebell ice cream every single night, then I would not sit back and go, "Why am I fat?" right Because I would know that to eat a tub of bluebell ice cream every night would make me fat there 's a consequence there from gluttony. not only that, but sometimes our suffering comes from a result of discipline it 's more than just the, the consequences that come, it's actual f- discipline that comes our way. It's chastisement from a loving God. You, you see this as you look through Scripture. When Jesus spoke to the crippled man at, the, at, at the, the pool of Bethesda there, in the temple, in John chapter 5, Jesus said, or, or tells us afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, we don't know that his being bedridden was a result of some sin in his life, but it seems to imply from Jesus' words that possibly it was. That he was being disciplined for sin in his life. 1 Corinthians, as we walked through that book and we came to the, the, the section that dealt with the Lord's Supper... Paul there writes to the Corinthians when they are abusing the table and leaving out brothers and sisters and getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, he said to them in 1 Corinthians 11, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. See, it points more, it's, it's beyond consequences for their sin. Now it, is beco- it has become a specific discipline by a loving God who says, don't do that. I'm calling you back from that. I love you too much to allow you to continue in that manner. Sometimes sickness and suffering are the direct result of sin in our lives, but other times suffering has no connection to personal sin at all. We saw this when the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Had no connection to any personal sin in his life at all. It was just the will of a sovereign God for his own glory. There's a movie being made right now. It's getting ready to come out. In fact, I think it just came out, 23 Blast. Uh, maybe you've seen that, or seen the previews for that. That movie is based on the life of Travis Freeman. I was Travis's youth minister at the very first church that Len and I served at together. Travis, when I showed up at that church, Travis is the one who gave us our tour of the three-story facilities that covered an entire city block. When he was 13 years old, he developed a sinus infection from bacterial meningitis that took his sight within just a matter of days. Travis could have at that moment cursed God. He could have gotten bitter. He could have gotten angry. He could have pitied himself. He could have gone into a shell. But from that moment, by the grace of God, through the work of his parents and some others, he decided to embrace it as the will of God. It was no sin that brought that on. It wasn't like he was he got drunk one night, got in a car behind the wheel, and crashed into a telephone pole and and, and you know that sort of thing. It, it was Not the result of any poor, sinful choice in his life. It was just just happened. It's just part of a Genesis 3 world. So how are we to look at this? Well, sometimes there's no explanation other than God is sovereign. If you're suffering here today, you ought to examine your life. Now, hear me on this. I want to be very, very, very compassionate with you. I don't understand what you're going through. I, what you're going through is very personal and very, very real to you. And I'm not, I'm not trying to treat you in a haphazard way and a, in a callous way and to look past your suffering, but what I am telling you is that sometimes, rather than pitying ourselves and rather than getting angry or complaining, God may be doing something behind the scenes that he wants you to see. So you ought to at least examine your life if sin comes to mind, verse 16 in the passage we're in today, he says, Confess your sins. Then the call to, would be that, that you could possibly be in the middle of suffering today because of some personal sin in your life. And I would call you to examine, and if, and if there is sin there, then repent, turn from it, and begin to follow Christ. David knew this all too well. David, in chapter 32 of the book of Psalms, wrote, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What David found was, as long as he kept his sin in secret, he suffered. He suffered. But when he bore his soul to God, when he came clean and when he turned from it and when he began to trust the Lord, he experienced relief. I can't promise you that's what it is. I can't promise you that will happen. I can't promise you that that if you just start confessing all your sin that your suffering is going to go away. I cannot promise you that. But it could be the case, and so I want to challenge you to do that because maybe it's been a long time or maybe it's been never that you've ever heard anyone confront you that you may be guilty. See, in our culture today, in our society, we have softened everything to the point where nobody's guilty of anything. What we need to hear sometimes is that we are guilty. Now, hear me, hear me, more than likely, That's not the reason for your suffering. But it could be. If if no sin, if you use this time to examine your life and no sin comes to mind, then I want to just encourage you, and this seems so empty and so it's so hard for me to say this because I feel like I'm so unequipped to tell you this. But I need to tell you this anyway because this is what God's Word instructs us to do. If no sin comes to mind and you continue to suffer, trust the Lord in it. Trust the Lord in it. He is good. He is faithful. He's enough. He has promised to see you through. He has not promised any of us in this life ease or happiness or cheerfulness James does not here give us an explanation as to why some suffer and why some are cheerful. He just seems to say, trust the Lord. It doesn't mean that you cannot pursue measures. It doesn't mean that you should not go to doctors. We should. We should take advantage of of all the medical science that we can possibly take advantage of within biblical ethics. But there may come a a point where everything has been exhausted and you can't get rid of the suffering. Let me tell you something. Paul couldn't either. Paul said, there is a thorn within my flesh and I have prayed, I have wrestled with the Lord, I have begged the Lord three separate times, remove it from me. But he told Paul, my grace will be sufficient for you. Third in this passage today as we walk through is this. When we walk through this passage, it sounds like a formula, but this is not a formula for healing. This is not some, if you do this and this and this, then God is obligated to act. He says here in verses 14 through 16, If, if is anyone sick among you, then let him call for the elders. And he begins this process, and he begins to walk through what they will do and how they will do it. Daniel Doriani, in his commentary on James, included a personal story, and I want to read part of that to you this morning because I think it's very pertinent to our discussion today. Daniel Doriani, who is a conservative, reformed, cessationist, Presbyterian pastor, says this, During the autumn when I first studied James in earnest, a friend suffered a viral infection of the heart. While it was not a heart attack, it mimicked many of the symptoms of one. My friend felt listless. He looked gray and lifeless. One day at church, I told him that James 5 instructs elders to lay hands on the sick and to pray for their healing. I suggested that he call the elders for that very purpose. Two weeks later, he told me he wanted to proceed. No one in our church had ever done this before, so we did something very Presbyterian. We studied the matter another six weeks and hoped that he didn't die in the meantime. At last, we appointed a night of prayer, a night for prayer, and elders gathered. Our church, church's pastor summoned the elders. Before we prayed, he told us not to expect a dramatic physical healing, since God heals in many ways. I appreciated his motive, Daniel Doriani says, but there was no need to restrain my enthusiasm. My doubting heart was already skeptical enough. My friend knelt down in the middle of a circle of elders. We anointed him with oil and laid hands on him and began to pray. Since I had started the process, I was appointed to offer the closing prayer. As soon as we began to pray, I had an overwhelming sense that God was at that moment healing my friend. My arms felt what I can only describe as bolts of fire pushing through them. As I grasped my friend's shoulder, heat and energy burned my hand. I I felt that my my one hand could lift all of his 230 pounds to the ceiling or push him through the floor if I wished. I knew God was healing him. I wanted to shout, we must stop praying that God will heal John and start praising God that he has healed him. But I was too astonished, too unsure of my sensations to say a word to anyone that night. For four days, I kept my experience to myself. Four days later, after church, my friend beckoned me with a wild grin, Dan, watch this. At once, he dashed up a flight of steps. I dashed after him and met him at the top. He smiled, and I'm not even breathing hard. I knew it, I exclaimed, and I told him what I had felt a few nights earlier. And he told me, I knew it too. Since that day, Daniel Doriani goes on to say, I have joined elders to lay hands on the sick and pray for them. I have never again felt that fire. And while I occasionally feel a flood of warmth and emotion, I have learned that my, my feelings and God's healings have no connections. A small number have experienced immediate healings from serious illness. More have recovered gradually and under the care of physicians. Many have found spiritual healing, great peace and spiritual renewal in times of crisis and suffering, whether they recovered physically or not. And some have apparently gained no physical or spiritual benefit at all. Now, if Doriani is like me, I bet that the very next time that he went with a group of elders to to, to pray over a sick person and to anoint them, I bet he made sure that he did everything exactly the same. I bet he gathered and stood in the exact same place around that, that bed or around that individual. I bet he tried to say the same things. Because here's what we do. When we see God work, we think that somehow it must be connected with how we did it. And we, we begin to think it's a formula, and if we say the right things, and if we do the right things, and we stand the right way, then God's obligated to work again. And we would do well to remember that God owes us nothing. That if God chooses to heal, it is a gift of His grace. I want to walk through these, this what we would be tempted to think is a formula, but it's not a formula at all. He says, if, if anyone's sick among you, let him call the elders pointing to the fact that the initiative rests with the individual who's sick. It's not up to the pastor or the elders to, to seek these people out, but instead it's up to that individual who is praying and discerning, I believe this is what God would have me to do for that person to call. He calls the elders of the church. It's not a particular member with a gift of healing. It's the elders, and it points to the way God has set up the church. We read through the New Testament, and every church where Paul established a church or any other apostle established a church in the New Testament, it was always not a single elder but a plurality or a group of elders, pastors that were charged with the care of that body. Let them pray over him. This points to the fact that this person is probably immobile. He cannot travel. He's bedridden. He he can't come to the church, but they come to him. This points to the fact that this is not establishing a a ministry of of setting up healing services. This is an individual going to them, anointing him with oil. This is not medicinal. It could have had some medicinal benefits, uh, oils were known to, to, to do a lot of things and help in a lot of ways. Uh, but it, it probably wasn't medicinal because they're not calling here physicians, they're calling the elders. It could have also provided a, a practical outward expression for the pastor to have a way to care, for the elder to have a way to care. It's a physical expression in the same way that when you stand and talk with people in the narthex, you like to have a cup of coffee because it gives you something to hide behind. In the same way, this could be a physical expression that when you go into a home, you've got something to do. could have been that. It's not sacramental. The Roman Catholic Church has taken this and, and, and turned this into uh, the last rites or extreme unction. But extreme unction, the way they see it is, is this rite of the priest where the priest comes and it is, it is to remove any remaining or residual sin in the person's life and then to strengthen them for dying. But James here, he's not, he doesn't have any emphasis on strengthening them for dying. In fact, he's saying this is the goal here is leading to health and life. Instead, I think what's going on here when he talks about anointing them with oil is this is symbolic. This is symbolic. Anointing in the Old Testament frequently symbolizes the setting apart of people or things for God's special use or service. We see this in in Exodus 28 with the sons of Aaron. You shall put on Aaron and, and your brother and on his sons, shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. I think what's going on here is this is symbolic, that when the elders come to a person's house and they, lay, they, they, they come where they are laying in bed or into a hospital room or some sort, they are symbolically with oil anointing them and saying, we are setting you apart for a special work of God. Now, all of this sounds very formulaic, but what about those that follow every step and still aren't healed? I want to remind you that there's not one person among us today that were among the original recipients of James' letter. There's not one person who was part of this church that was scattered abroad throughout Jerusalem that that is here today to say, Hey, guys, this really works. Because every person there has since died. They've died of something. We will all die of something. Something eventually will Will take us. Paul worked great miracles, yet he couldn't heal Timothy. He told Timothy, Don't drink just water anymore, but take a little wine for your stomach, for those issues with your stomach. Trophimus and Epaphroditus. He couldn't heal them all. So this is not a formula that obligates God to do any such thing. Instead, this is number four, a reminder. This is a reminder and a demonstration that God is sovereign. That he is sovereign over you and over your sickness. This is a reminder and a demonstration that God is sovereign over you and your sickness. He says there in verse 15, The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Please, please note that when it says the, the prayer of faith will save, it does not say when. When it says the Lord will raise him up, it does not say where. Instead, we must look to the the whole biblical context of this passage and say, if God chooses to save us here and give us physical healing here, then great. But if He doesn't, He will eventually heal us from all that wounds us. We will be raised up. It may not be raised up from the beds that we are bedridden in, but He will eventually, those who trust in Him, they will be raised to live with Him forever. We should all remember that God owes us nothing, that He alone has numbered our days, that nothing can shorten or lengthen those days, and He holds those. And if God chooses to heal, it won't be because we had enough faith or because we followed every step, it will be because in His sovereign will, He graced it to us. Rest assured, though, Christian, you have been set apart to God and you will be protected by God. It may or may not be in this life, but you can mark it down when James says that He will save you and He will raise you up. Those are sure words. And number five is this. Make no mistake, prayer does work. Prayer does work because, and it sounds so cliche, prayer does work because God works. See, oftentimes we, we put all this stock in prayer. Oh, I believe in the power of prayer. And what we've done is we've taken all the focus off the God that we are praying to and we've put all the focus on The words that we say. See, prayer, there's nothing special about prayer. There are people of all different religions that are praying all the time. I don't believe in prayer that beckons me at the sound of some some horn or some siren or some bells that calls me to to look a certain direction and to, to pray multiple times a day. That's not the kind of prayer that I'm believing in. I'm believing in prayer because I know that the God to whom I am praying is real and He is sovereign and He is loving and He is good. And it may have sounded today like I have told you that if you're suffering, just accept it. And I am calling you to trust God, but what I am not wanting you to see or to walk away with is the thought that God does not care where you are. In 16 through 18, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There he goes on and he says, pray that you may be healed. He doesn't say just pray. Now he says, pray that you may be healed. We're told to ask this. Look, I don't understand why God wants us to pray, but he does. He's told us that in all things pray. That we're to carry everything to him in prayer James goes on and says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And he points to the example of Elijah. And instead of calling Elijah a prophet, to which we would say, well, yes, that was a prophet. That was a special man of God. He's very plain in what he says. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed... He prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months and it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Child of God, take courage and take comfort. Take hope in the fact that there is a God who hears your prayers and who loves to act on our behalf. He will not, you and I sometimes pray with An incomplete picture, don't we? Is incomplete a word? I don't think it is. It's incomplete? Uncomplete? A resident? We'll go with it. Okay. All right. We often don't have all the information, though, do we? We don't know all of what God is doing and, and what we're going through, how that's going to lead to what he's promised. And sometimes we pray for things that if God were to do what we ask him to do, would work directly contrary to what he has promised that he's already going to do. So God's not going to change those things. He's not going to bring about an evil just because we want it. But he is a compassionate father who does listen to his children, who loves to give them blessings. And this is not, hear me on this, this is not this prosperity theology. This is reality. You and I sit here today and we are blessed by God. Let's don't be ashamed of that. We sit here today knowing that that Jesus came from heaven and went to the cross for us. That is a blessing of God. That is the heart of a father who loves to bless his children. So if you're here today and you are suffering, pray, turn to God. If you're here today and you are cheerful, then sing praise to God. Regardless of where you are, worship let me give you just three points of application quickly and i'm done number one is this what form of worship does your present situation call for where are you at in this spectrum of life circumstance and what does it call for are you taking that on yourself and refusing to worship god in it and turning it inward on yourself What does it call for? How might you worship God through whatever you're going through right now? Number two, I'm going to ask for a personal point of application here. Pray for me as your pastor. Pray that I would be a pastor that has the kind of faith that would pray boldly over you. That would pray in such a way that I call God to heal. Number three, pray that we would be a church that prays like Elijah. Church, I love I love where we are. I love, I love you. I love being your pastor. I love the fact that you love one another and we love the word. I, I love all of that. But if there is an area, a couple of areas that I think we are struggling in, what led me to preach this book was the fact that I feel like we are sometimes apathetic, in our following of God. And secondly is this, we don't pray like Elijah. We're, we're, not, a, we're not a praying church like we, we ought to be. Pray that we would be a church that prays like Elijah. I hope that you've heard my heart today. If you are here suffering, please don't walk away from here going, he's arrogant and callous to tell me to just embrace it. I don't want you to hear that at all. But I want you to see the heart of a of a big God who is a great father. Who sometimes will allow us to suffer and hurt if it will produce in us something that is far greater and far better. Trust him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. God, I thank you that that your grace is sufficient. Lord, that today in this place that there are people that are suffering and they may be wondering, how will I ever get through this? Lord, I, I pray, God, that they would know that you are sufficient, that you will meet every need, that you will sustain, that your presence is enough. Lord, I pray that you would take the words of this passage and, God, that you would let them sink deep into the fabric of our lives and God that that we would begin to live these things out that we would respond to you in worship that our lives would be less about me and they would be more about you your glory your glory in the lives of those that we touch every day Lord I pray that you would do your work I pray this in Jesus name amen now I don't know how the Lord has specifically spoken to you today, but we want to give you an opportunity to respond. If you're here and the Lord has just shouted at you and you know what you need to do today, then do it, don't wait. If you're here today and even though I have shouted today, you've heard the voice of God like a whisper directly to you, then do it. Whatever it is that God is calling you to, respond in worship. I don't want to give you a list of things to do, but I do want to give you a list of opportunities. There are people that would pray with you. They are out in that prayer room, just through those doors. I would be glad to pray with you. I'll be seated right up here. If you need someone to talk to beyond this day, please, call me. Please let me know. I would love to come and sit or have you come and sit and we talk through some things. If I can help you in any way I I want to help you but you don't need me so much as you need God and so if, if turning to me is an excuse to avoid turning to God then don't come to me. Go to God. But, church, let's trust the heart of our Father. Respond in obedience, respond in worship to Him. Amen. Amen. Let's worship our God. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.